This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're now going to take a look at the big GE breakup that happened this week. Helping us to do that is Emily Feldman, management professor here at Wharton. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. So, Emily, as we saw, GE decided to split up into three companies over a week ago, and the markets have really been applauding that. GE stock is up. Um, Tell us a little bit about what was behind this breakup and how the market is receiving it. Yeah, definitely. So this is uh, a very standard traditional push to focus, uh, and we have seen a lot of these types of transactions in the past and I would argue are going to in the future as well. So basically what we had with old GE was a very widely diversified conglomerate, one of the classic conglomerates, in fact, uh, you know, consisting of very disparate businesses, right, healthcare, aviation, energy, and so, you know, this most recent uh, three-way split uh, really marks uh, the separation of these disparate businesses into independent freestanding companies. Uh, I'm not at all surprised at the very positive market reaction. Uh, this is typically what happens, actually, when uh, companies announce uh, spinoffs like this, focus increasing spinoffs and divestitures, uh, because we have the ability to have these more focused businesses after the completion of these transactions. So what was the the prior thinking? Because I know conglomerates were really in vogue, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. What was the previous thinking that led to the creation of these massive conglomerates? Was it just, you know, let's increase our our market cap by any means necessary. We can expand into any business line um, that is ancillary to our core business line. What was the thinking that drove the creation of these conglomerates in the first place? Yeah, for sure. So there's a number of motivations for them, in fact, and and you listed a couple of them, right? So Uh, Probably the biggest one that I would point to is diversification, right? So the theory being that if you combine uh, lines of business that have different growth characteristics, different profitability characteristics, uh, perhaps different cyclicalities, uh, you can achieve some kind of offsetting or balancing effect where if one business goes up uh, and another business goes down, you kind of smooth out the whole portfolio. So that's a big motivation for uh, these so-called conglomerates. But exactly like you were saying, you know, there's there's other reasons that we can point to as well, right? So some of these conglomerates are actually uh, in very closely related businesses to one another. So to your to your comment about getting into adjacencies or complementary lines of business, so that can also be uh, a motivation for this kind of expansion beyond sort of a single single line of of business or a core business that a company might have. Uh, I do agree with you also that that size uh, can be a big consideration as well. Uh, so obviously, executives like running bigger companies, no surprise there. Uh, and so that can that can be, uh, you know, one of the one of the less um, seemly motivations for for these uh, for these types of, of corporate structures as well. So, what is the actual process for breaking up a conglomerate? What does it actually look like, step by step, for those listeners that, that may may not have inside knowledge of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, I think what's important here is to recognize that this week's announcement actually, you know, marks, like I said before, kind of a culmination of uh, a number of, of transactions, a number of divestitures that GE, GE has undertaken to sort of dismantle the conglomerate structure. So, you know, obviously the uh, GE Capital divestitures, right, were kind of businesses were sold off in the financial services side of the business piecemeal over the years. 
um, GE got rid of its legacy light bulb business, right? So that was a major transaction. GE, of course, was originally uh, the company that produced light bulbs. Uh, and so, you know, kind of got rid of that business at one point. Uh, we had seen the divestitures of the aircraft leasing business and Baker Hughes, the oil and gas uh, services business, uh, over the past several years as well. You know, and sort of now, most recently, uh, these this three-way uh, split of the of the organization. So there's many different structures that companies can use to divest businesses. You could sell one of the businesses to another company, as in the light bulb example. Uh, you could spin off certain businesses, which is much more reflective of what we're seeing this week. Uh, kind of creating independent publicly traded companies out of the conglomerates uh, component pieces. And then, you know, there's various even more complicated uh, divestiture structures as well that, that companies can use to, to separate certain businesses, uh, like joint ventures, for example. Um, so, so, so lots of different ways, actually, that we could see the process of divestitures and, and breaking apart a conglomerate unfold. And is the current economic cycle, is the fact that we're sort of in a robust, bullish economic cycle in general, uh, precipitating a lot of this because companies believe that they can spin off uh, the individual components of a conglomerate into an upward market, and so that'll help boost valuation too? Absolutely, right. So we're really in uh, an unprecedented period right now, I would say, both from a divestiture and an acquisition perspective, right? So we're seeing acquisition activity right now at all-time highs uh, as companies uh, really are finding the the ability to just kind of get rid of businesses and and have other companies be very willing to buy them with all of the capital that's floating around uh, really low interest rates right so lots of opportunities to, uh, to to kind of do these transactions and divestitures are really benefiting from this right for, for one of the reasons that you said because of these uh, increased valuations but for other for the other reason being that there are many willing buyers right so that's also contributing to uh, a lot of this transaction activity on the divestiture side right now. So speaking of divestiture activity, Johnson & Johnson also announcing today that it will be splitting itself up into two different companies, a pharmaceutical research company and a consumer pharma company. Um, what are your thoughts about J&J, Armina? Are the motivations there, the rationale, is it as strong as it was for GE or possibly even stronger? Absolutely. I, I mean, it's it's huge news, right? GE is, of course, one of these other, you know, very storied, you know, household name types of companies. Uh, and so, you know, I would argue actually that from a structural standpoint, it's it's almost exactly analogous to what we're seeing with GE, uh, in the sense that we have, you know, in, in Johnson and Johnson's case, kind of two different businesses with two very different sets of structural characteristics. You know, one riskier, faster growing, you know, one more stable, uh, perhaps a bit slower growing. Right. And so the idea behind the G behind the general behind the Johnson and Johnson, pardon me, split is to say, well, let's have these separate businesses that can each focus on uh, their own core business, you know, free from complications from the other side. Uh, let's kind of have these separate businesses and allow them to, to function independently. Right. So from a structural standpoint, I would say very similar, actually, to, to the GE uh, separation. So, Emily, talking again about the divestiture and using the example of J&J &J this time, um, obviously it unleashes value. Obviously, there are very important managerial reasons and even economic reasons why this would make sense. But one can envision sometime in the future where there may be like a, a pharma product development that they may, you know, J&J &J may actually want to reformulate sort of for a consumer base and then it might want to make it into a consumer product. So 
um, you know, you can think of an example of something that starts as like a pharma product and then might evolve into something simpler or more commonplace. It could become a consumer goods product or any other rationale that there may be for the two, you know, divested or spinoff companies to, in a sense, interact with one another or exchange proprietary information. How does that happen once the two companies are divested? I mean, are they entirely separate or do they have any sort of, you know, like history and goodwill or, or you know, continuing relationship that they can use to sort of capitalize on, on those horizontal synergies? Yeah, that's a great question. Very sophisticated. So, you know, what's interesting about spinoffs uh, in particular is that they, like you said, they, they, they wind up in the creation of, with the creation of two independent publicly traded companies, right? So, you know, of course, those two companies might transact at arm's length, just like any other two public companies, even those that hadn't been separated in a spinoff might transact, right? So there are certainly opportunities for, for ongoing interaction and ongoing transactions between uh, the formerly integrated companies that might be separated in a spinoff. Now, what's really interesting uh, about your question and, and what you said is the fact that, you know, we can really sort of see the logic here for why Johnson & Johnson might have wanted to have the pharmaceutical business and the consumer pro products business as part of the same organization in the first place. So this is what I like to think of as the circle of life, if you will, of corporate transactions in the sense that, you know, at period one, we end up seeing companies articulate this logic that there is value to be had by combining these different businesses in the same organization because it makes their transactions uh, simpler, more straightforward, easier to execute because they're part of the same company. And then eventually some of that logic deteriorates, so they separate. And then at some later point in the future, right, there, there might actually be a resurgence of the logic. Well, let's kind of recombine and, and sort of see these, uh, these, these types of businesses together, a pharma, a pharma business plus a consumer business together. So we've actually seen, uh, you know, many, many pharma companies, for example, actually do just this, right? So kind of acquire and build up on the consumer product side and then eventually divest it. So I actually wouldn't be surprised at all in the future, uh, and it, it may be a long time into the future, we'll see, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if we actually ended up seeing some of the pharmaceutical companies that have broken apart along this dimension kind of re-agglomerate themselves in some sense uh, after the fact. Yeah, Emily, I mean, this just, I, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, of course, but this just really strikes me as being motivated by the current economic cycle more than anything else. I mean, yes, there are, you know, um, product line benefits and managerial benefits and so forth divesting, but also what you get is better return as shareholder. You get, you know, more valuation for the two separate entities uh, amidst the frothy market. And then, as you say, in the future, there's going to potentially be an argument again for, for re-agglomeration. And so the question, you know, then becomes what what sort of underlying managerial questions are being asked and, and where in the process do they need to be answered? You know, from a high-level management perspective, how should this be handled and what should the thinking be to ensure that this is not just, you know, purely motivated by, by the current economic cycle? Yeah, definitely, right? So, so the evidence shows, right, that, that focus tends to yield higher returns, right, and, and tends to be better for, for kind of operations, uh, operational performance than, uh, than diversification, right, for the simple reason that you can kind of focus your attention and your resources on, uh, you know, businesses that you're good at, right, a core competence, if you will. 
so so from that perspective, right, the, the, the right answer, I guess, in some senses is is focus. Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, there's there's always an element of opportunism. There's always an element of kind of market cycles, market timing even, you know, and so I think that's where the managerial decision making might get a bit uh, complicated, right, because uh, even though it's the right decision to remain focused, right, perhaps there are opportunities that present themselves uh, or something like that that sort of change the calculus away from from sort of the right answer. So, you know, this is why we end up seeing, like I was saying, this circle of life kind of mentality where we have, you know, big waves of divestitures and big waves of acquisitions and, you know, kind of undoing and redoing uh, these 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 uh, agglomerations, conglomerations of, of businesses over time. Of course, the investment bankers profit coming and going in these uh, in these uh, in these cycles. So that's the uh, that's those are the ones who are getting rich off of this. But um, I do think it's uh, I do think it's interesting to to uh, kind of reflect on the difference between what should be happening from a managerial perspective versus what actually does happen from a managerial perspective. Let's take a step back and look at GE again. And where do you envision them a year from now? Where do you envision these three different um, divested lines being a year, you know, a year or so from now? Do you do you envision most of the spinoffs uh, mostly being complete? I think they said that it was the consumer uh, one that would be done first. Yes. So, so absolutely right. So, so the spinoffs will will go through, right? And each of these uh, each of these businesses will be independent, publicly traded companies. Um, you know what we observe uh, when we look at data on these companies is, as I mentioned before, their operational performance tends to improve uh, once they're able to function as freestanding entities because they're able to allocate capital uh, more efficiently to opportunities that might present themselves. They're able to engage in mergers and acquisitions that are geared specifically towards their growth opportunities that might present themselves in the relevant markets that they're in. Uh, And even because uh, their managers can be more appropriately or more sharply incentivized uh, based on the performance of the individual businesses that they're actually running. Um, so, so those are, are definitely three reasons that we end up seeing uh, for why there's, there is so much performance improvement uh, among these businesses that are separated in these spinoffs. So the other thing that's really interesting, and, and I, would, I would kind of say is a strong possibility, is that we actually tend to observe that many spinoff companies are acquired uh, or merge with other companies at some point after they become independent companies. So there are there are rules and regulations about how quickly that can happen. Uh, but nonetheless, we actually do tend to see a disproportionate number of uh, companies that are spun off end up being acquired or merge, merging with, uh, with other companies. Uh, and so, again, the argument is one of focus there uh, in the sense that they are able to find merger partners that are that are more specifically geared towards what they're doing. Uh, and so they become very attractive as acquisition targets, actually, for that exact reason. So that, so I would predict that that will happen as well uh, for, for some, if not all, of these independent businesses. So and that certainly makes sense for GE. I, I wonder um, for J&J, uh, it seems like they're, they're the two lines of business are perhaps more closely related than GE's were. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about the acquisition prospects in the future for any of these lines? I mean, are are we just really awaiting sort of a downturn uh, in the cycle when the valuation becomes more attractive for potential acquirers? Or or when do you see that sort of acquisition of of spinoffs tend to occur in, in the cycle? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good question, right? And so, you know, for for J and J, actually, I would equally say that you know it would be quite likely that that the separate businesses 
uh, might merge with or acquire acquire other businesses, right? So you could easily see, for example, the consumer products business combining with a with another consumer products business. And the logic is, well, we can be more efficient by uh, consolidating, um, you know, kind of analogous or pa- parallel products, for example, that we might each be producing, right? So we both have bandages, right? So let's kind of put all the bandages together in one business unit, and maybe we can run it more efficiently, for example, after the acquisition. So, so yeah, so market market timing and market cycle is, of course, part of this. Uh, part of it is, of course, the availability and willingness of other targets that might be out there um, uh, to, to kind of do these combinations in the first place. Um, and, and part of it is, you know, to this point about efficiency and consolidation, you know, part of it might be driven, for example, by the next downturn, right, when those kinds of benefits might be even more attractive to companies, right? The ability to operate more efficiently, more cheaply uh, is, of course, much more much more attractive during a market downturn. So we could we could see that being a, a factor as well. Uh, so, so there's a number of a number of, of considerations that I would say uh, would come in into exactly when we'd, we'd be likely to see that acquisition. What's coming next, Emily? Um, are we just in a sort of divestiture mode right now where we can expect other conglomerates to be broken up? We certainly are. It's it's really incredible, right? So we had kind of our last high watermark with divestiture activity in about 2015, 2016. And, you know, 17, 18, 19 were no slouch in terms of divestitures. But, you know, especially 2020 and 2021 post-pandemic, we've seen a huge resurgence of uh, of this type of activity, so part of it is being driven by the role of activist investors who are oftentimes going into companies and demanding uh, that they that they do these exact divestitures for many of the reasons that we've talked about here today, more efficient to operate focused business, better capital allocation opportunities, uh, stronger, stronger independent stock market performance, right? So all of that is very attractive to activist investors. Uh, and so they tend to tend to push for these kinds of uh, activities. Right. So, so I would argue that that's one factor that contributes to the, the likely continuation of the divestiture activity that we're seeing. But the other thing I would say is that the word is finally starting to get out a little bit that divestitures are you know, very value, value creating for, for companies that undertake them. And in fact, the longer that companies wait to divest their businesses, the more they hold on, sometimes the more oftentimes the more value destruction happens. So from that perspective, you know, my my view of the world, and I'm writing a book on this right now, which will be coming out next November, is that companies need to use divestitures much more proactively uh, as a strategic tool uh, in in reshaping their corporate portfolios in a a very active sense, right? So that's really my view of the world with these transactions. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And you think of somebody like GE, who has been around for generations and generations, their product line has to evolve and it can't remain you know, can't remain light bulbs forever. Yeah, absolutely. Got to gotta grow and change. It's, uh, it's not always static. I agree with that. Emily, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. This was great. And that was Emily Feldman, management professor at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.